In this episode, we will continue our personal reading of Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Carnes. This is a personal reading done to fulfill the requirements of a church history class that I am taking through the Master's University online. Um, I pray that this reading is a blessing to you. It is a personal reading, which means I'm going to encounter words, names, and places that I am not familiar with, <clears throat> and I will probably mis mispronounce them, so um, please forgive me for that. Bear with me if you are familiar with these terms, um, but uh, I'll do my best to, to pronounce them properly. So let's get after it. Chapter 15. In the section titled The Supremacy of the Old Catholic Imperial Church, 313 to 590 AD. Chapter 15. Hierarchical and Liturgical Developments. Just pause there. I'll give some brief definitions. Hierarchical is the idea of a pyramid-shaped leadership form, and liturgical is uh, synonymous with the word worship. So um, these are ecclesiastical practices as far as litur liturgy goes um, that we will be seeing in this chapter. So we'll pick up the reading now in chapter 15. Between 313 and 590, the old Catholic Church, in which each bishop had been an equal, became the Roman Catholic Church, in which the bishop of Rome won primacy over other bishops. The ritual of the church also became much more elaborate. The Roman Catholic Church, in its structure and canon law, reflects imperial Rome. Roman numeral 1. The Dominance of the Roman Bishop the bishop in the early church was considered one of the many bishops who were equal to one another in rank, power, and function. Between 313 and 450, the Roman bishop came to be acknowledged as the first among equals, but beginning with Leo I's ascension to the episcopal throne in 440, the Roman bishop began to claim his supremacy over other bishops. The need of efficiency and coordination led naturally to centralization of power. The bishop was also considered the guarantor of orthodox doctrine. In addition, some of the Roman bishops of this period were strong men who missed no opportunity to increase their power. Historical events during this era conspired to enhance the reputation of the bishop of Rome. Rome had been the traditional center of authority for the Roman world for half a millennium, and was the largest city in the West. After Constantine moved the capital of the, of the empire to Constantinople in 330, the center of political gravity shifted from Rome to that city. This left the Roman bishop as the single strongest individual in Rome for great periods of time, and the people of, the era, of that area came to look to him for temporal as well as spiritual leadership whenever a crisis faced them. He was a tower of strength during the sacking of Rome in 410 by Alaric and his Visigoth followers, and his clever diplomacy had at least been able to save the city from the torch. The emperor of Con at Constantinople was remote from Rome and its problems, but the bishop was near at hand to exercise effective authority in meeting political as well as spiritual crisis. When the imperial throne in the west fell into the hands of the barbarians in 476 and other Italian cities became the seat of temporal power, the people of Italy came to look to the Roman bishop for political as well as spiritual leadership. 
Paul and Peter, influential apostles, were linked with Rome in their deaths. The Petrine theory, based on such scriptures as Matthew 16, 16 through 18, Luke 22, 31 and 32, and John 21, verses 15 through 17, was generally accepted by 590 AD. According to this theory, Peter had been given, quote, ecclesiastical primogeniture, end quote, over his fellow apostles, and his superior position had been passed on from him to his successors, the bishops of Rome, by apostolic succession. As early as, as 250, Stephen I had appealed these scriptures. Such great theologians as Cyprian, Tertullian, and Augustine were outstanding men in the Western Church under the leadership of the Bishop of Rome. The domains of the Roman bishop had never suffered from heretical disputes such as those that had divided the East, for example, those of Arius. Indeed, the bishop of Rome had held synods in which he had been able to develop clearly what was to be the orthodox position. Of the five great patriarchs of the church in Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome, only the patriarch of Constantinople and the bishop of Rome lived in cities of world consequence by 590. The bishop of Jerusalem lost prestige after the Jewish rebellion against Rome during the 2nd century. Alexandria and Antioch had rapidly declined in importance and finally were overrun by the Muslim hordes in the 7th century. The Council of Constantinople in 381 recognized the primacy of the Roman see. The Patriarch of Constantinople was given, quote, the primacy of honor next after the Bishop of Rome, end quote according to the third canon of the Council of Constantinople. This was a practical recognition of the primacy of the Roman bishop by a group of leading clerics of the church. Emperor Valentinian III, in an edict in AD 445, recognized the supremacy of the bishop of Rome in spiritual affairs. What the bishop enact, would enact was to be, quote, law for all, end quote. Thus, both ecclesiastical and temporal authorities in the 4th and 5th century recognized the claims of the Bishop of Rome to primacy in the Church. The effective missionary work of monks loyal to Rome also enhanced the authority of the Roman Bishop. Clovis, the leader of the Franks, was a loyal supporter of the authority of the Bishop of Rome. Gregory I sent Augustine to England, and that monk and his successors were able to bring Britain under the sway of Rome. Wherever missionary monks went, they insisted that their converts yield allegiance to the Bishop of Rome. Above all, the Roman Church was blessed with many able bishops during this era, and these men lost no chance to strengthen their power. Damasius I, 366-84, was apparently the first bishop of Rome to describe his see as the, quote, apostolic see, end quote. The Vulgate translation of the Bible, which Jerome began in Damasius's request while he was his secretary, added to the prestige of the occupants of the Episcopal chair in Rome. Jerome's high opinion of the authority of his emperor can be read in a letter that he wrote to Damasius. In, in this letter, he categorically stated that the chair of Peter is the rock on which the church was built.
Leo I, who occupied the episcopal throne in Rome between 440 and 461, was the ablest occupant of that chair until Gregory I took, the, took that position in 590. His abilities won for him the name Great. He made much use of the title Papus, from which our word Pope is derived. In 452, he was able to persuade Attila the Hun to let the city of Rome alone. Again in 455, the Gezeric and the Vandal followers from North Africa came to sack Rome, and Leo persuaded them to save the city from fire and pillage. He had had to agree, however, that the city would be given over to a two-week period of sacking by Vandals. Gezeric kept his word, and the Romans looked up to Leo as the one who had saved their city from complete destruction. His position was further strengthened when Valentinian III recognized his spiritual supremacy in the West by an edict in 445. Leo insisted that appeals from the church courts of bishops should be brought to his court and that his decisions should be final. He defined orthodoxy in his tome and wrote against the heresy of Manichaeans and the Donatists. Even if we do not consider Leo the first pope, it is far to say that he made the claims and exercised the power of many latter incumbents of the Roman bishopric. Galatius I, pope from 492 to 496, wrote in 494 that God gave both sacred and royal power to the pope and the king. Because the pope had to account to God for the king at the judgment, the sacred power of the pope was more important than the royal power. Hence, rulers should submit to the Pope. Perhaps such power was useful in this early period in dealing with the barbarians, but later it led to corruption within the Roman Church itself. Roman numeral 2. The Growth of the Liturgy The practical union of the Church and the state under Constantine and his successors had to, led to the secularization of the Church. The Patriarch of Constantinople came under the control of the Emperor, and the Eastern Church became a department of the state. The influx of pagans into the Church through the mass conversion movements of the era contributed to the paganization of worship as the Church tried to make these barbarian converts feel at home within its fold. This influx of pagans, many of whom did not become more than nominal Christians, caused the Church to call upon the state to help enforce discipline by the use of, the, of its temporal power to punish ecclesiastical offenses. In 529, Justinian, emperor of the eastern segment of the empire, ordered the closing of the Academy of Athens. Until that time, pagan Greek philosophy had been taught there. Discipline became lax within the Church because its resources were overtaxed in handling the many barbarians who had been only partially converted from paganism. The influx of barbarians and, to the and the growth of the episcopal power also brought changes in the worship of the church. If the barbarians, who had been used, used to worshiping images, were to find any real help in the church, many church leaders believed that it would be necessary to materialize the liturgy to make God seem more accessible to these worshipers. The veneration of angels, saints, relics, pictures, and statues was a logical outcome of this attitude. Connection with the monarchical state also led to a change from a simple democratic worship to a more aristocratic, colorful form of liturgy with a sharply drawn distinction between clergy and laity.
Sunday became one of the major days in the church calendar after Constantine decided that it was a day was to be a day of civic as well as religious worship. The festival of Christmas became a regular practice in the West about the middle of the 4th century. With the adoption of the December date that had been previously used by the pagans, the Feast of Epiphany, which in the West celebrated the coming of the Magi to see Christ in the and in the East, Christ's baptism was also brought into the church calendar. Accretions from the Jewish sacred year, the gospel history, and the lives of saints and martyrs led to a steady expansion of the number of holy days in the church calendar. There was also an increase in the number of ceremonies that could be ranked as sacraments. Augustine was inclined to believe that marriage should be regarded as a sacrament. Cyprian held that penance was vital to the Christian life. With the increased gap between the clergy and the laity, it was almost necessary to consider ordination in the light of a sacrament. In about 400 confirmation and extreme unction came to be looked on as having sacramental value. The early theological development of the doctrine of original sin contributed to the importance of infant baptism. By the beginning of the 3rd century, Tertullian and Cyprian considered infant baptism an accepted, for, an accepted fact. Augustine especially emphasized the importance of baptism. The Lord's Supper occupied the central place in the thinking of the worshiper and the order of the liturgy. In fact, it was in process of becoming a sacrifice as well as a sacrament. Cyprian thought that the priest acted in Christ's place at communion and that he offered, quote, a true and full sacrifice to God the Father, end quote. The canon of the Mass, which Gregory I altered slightly, emphasized the sacrificial nature of the communion service. By the end of the 6th century, all the seven acts that the Roman Catholic Church regards as sacraments were in use and had exalted position in worship. Sacerdotalism, the belief that the substance of the ordinance is efficacious, excuse me, through the priest, through the priestly celebrant, steadily gained ground. Let me read that sentence again. Sacerdotalism, the belief that the substance of the ordinance is efficacious through the priestly celebrant, steadily gained ground. Recall, this is in the fourth century. We'll resume our reading now. This led to an increasing emphasis on the separation of the clergy and the laity. The veneration of Mary, the mother of Jesus, developed rapidly by 590 and led to the adoption of the doctrines of her Immaculate Conception in 1854 and miraculous Assumption to Heaven in 1950. The false interpretation of Scripture and the mass of miracles associated with Mary in the Apocryphal Gospels created great reverence for her. The Nestorian and other Christological controversies of the 4th century resulted in the acceptance of her as the, quote, Mother of God, end quote, and entitled her to special honors in the liturgy. Clement, Jerome, and Tertullian had ascribed perpetual virginity to Mary, Augustine believed that the mother of the sinless Christ had never committed actual sin. Monasticism, with its emphasis on the virtue of virginity, 
strengthened the idea of the veneration of Mary. These and other considerations led the Roman Church to give special honor to Mary. What at first merely was merely acknowledgment of her exalted position as Christ's mother soon became belief in her intercessory powers because it was thought that the son would be glad to listen to the requests of his mother. The prayer of Ephraim, Cyrus, before 400 AD, is an early instance of a formal invocation to her. By the middle of the 5th century, she was placed at the head of, the all, the head of all saints. Festivals associated with her also sprang up in the 5th century. The Feast of Annunciation of, on March 25th, which celebrated the angelic announcement of the birth of a, of a son to her, Candlemass on February 2nd, the celebration of her purification after the birth of Christ, and the Assumption on August 15th, which celebrates her supposed ascension to heaven, were the principal festivals. In the 6th century, Justinian asked her intercession on behalf of his empire. By 590, she had a unique position in the worship of the Roman Church. The veneration of saints grew out of the natural desire of the church to honor those who had been martyrs in the days when the church had been severely persecuted by the state. Furthermore, the pagans had been accustomed to the veneration of their heroes, and when so many pagans came into the church, it was almost natural for them to substitute the saints for their heroes and to give them semi-divine honors. Up to the year 300, Celebrations at the grave involved only prayers for the repose of the soul of the saint. But by 590, prayer for them had become prayer to God through them. This was accepted at the Second Council of Nicaea. Churches and chapels were built over their graves. Festivals associated with their death gained a place in the church calendar and legends of miracles associated with them developed rapidly. The terrific the terrific on relics, such as bodies, teeth, hair, or bones, became so great a problem that it was ordered stopped in 381. The use of images and pictures in worship expanded rapidly as more and more untutored barbarians came into the church. Both images and practices materialized the invisible reality of deity for these worshipers. They also had a decorative function in beautifying a church. The fathers of the church tried to make a distinction between the reverence of these images, reverence that was a part of the liturgy, and the worship of God. But it, was, but it is doubtful whether this subtle distinction prevented the ordinary worshiper from offering to them the worship that the fathers would reserve to God alone. Thanksgiving, or penitential processions, became a part of worship after 313. Pilgrimages, at first to Palestine and later to the tombs of notable saints, became customary. Constantine's mother, Helena, visited Palestine, Palestine in her old age and was supposed to have found the true cross. Government aid and freedom of worship under Constantine led to extensive building of churches, the Christians borrowed the basilica type of architectural that the Romans had developed for public buildings devoted to business or pleasure. The basilica was a long rectangular cruciform building with two aisles, a portico at the west end of the un for the unbaptized, 
and the chancel at the east end were the choir, the priests, and, if it was a cathedral church, the bishop officiated during the service. This chancel was usually separated from the nave by a screen of ironwork. The earliest singing in the church had been conducted by a leader to whom the people gave response in song. Antiphonal singing, in which two separate, separated choirs sing alternately, developed at Antioch. Ambrose introduced the practice of antiphonal singing in Milan, from whence it spread through the Western Church. This was also an era of great preachers. Ambrose in the West and Chrysostomum in the East were leading preachers. Until that time, these preachers wore no special vestments. Special vestments for the priests were to come as the people gave up the Roman type of dress, while the clergy retained it in the church services. During this era, there were there arose a special sacerdotal hierarchy under a dominant bishop, the tendency to increase the number of sacraments and to make them the main avenues of grace, and the movement of the to the elaborate to elaborate the liturgy. These things helped to lay the foundation for the medieval Roman Catholic Church.